You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. We have a problem with enmity, with dissonance, with ill will, with estrangement in our relationships with one another. Last night's massacre at a gay bar in Orlando, enmity. This past week's deluge of hate mail against a high school girl who preached, who proclaimed her valedictorian address in Texas, loved by everyone, commendable in her character and her academic excellence and her kindness, sharing a bed all her life with her mother and her daughter, and yet still soaring academically, but daring to be in America as an undocumented student in a high school. We have a problem with enmity. We have a problem that we would promote and support and nourish and encourage politicians who would be hate and fear mongers, who would pander to our sense of loss of power and loss of stature and loss of significance and would do all they could to draw us in to their sour game by we will build the biggest wall or we will bring down those who are in positions of preference and privilege. We have a problem with enmity. But we don't have to just look outside ourselves. We can look within ourselves, can't we? We can look within at our own self-loathing, our own difficulty loving ourselves, our treating ourselves as an enemy, but an enemy that we with whom we can't obey Jesus' admonition to love our enemies. And so we succumb to the latest addiction of whatever it might be to try and cover over and feed and fuel this emptiness and loneliness and self-despair and this sense of insignificance that daunts our days and makes our nights sleepless. We have a problem with enmity. And so our text for today is stunning news. It was stunning then, 2,000 years ago. It's stunning now. Because it's the news of God's disruptive way of healing enmity. Of God's disruptive way of creating unity, oneness, in the midst of estrangement. If you turn with me, it's Ephesians chapter 2, and in the Bible, in your pew rack, it's page 950. And if you opened it, keep your finger there, because we're going to be looking at it um, frequently. I'm preparing to retire, as you're getting there, I'm preparing to retire, as I mentioned. And this week, I was throwing away files of lecture notes from the past 40 years and sermons from the past 40 years. And I came across a sermon I preached here 35 years ago on this text. I won't give commentary on the sermon, but it did warrant a letter from a parishioner, uh, someone in the Society for the Preservation of the English Language, (laughs) because apparently I pronounced in this sermon nuclear, nuclear. And that so outraged this listener that they couldn't pay attention to any of the content. They just wanted to make sure that this poor idiot never again um, butchered the English language. I didn't even know there was a society for the preservation of the English language. But I've also never said nuclear ever again. 
There's a comprehensiveness in this passage that, that spans every aspect of our lives and every aspect of society in God's way of healing. We'll begin in verse 12, and I'll just read the first two verses, and then we'll continue on. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and with God, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Aliens, strangers, without hope, no citizenship, no home, no place to belong, shoved to the side describes us, doesn't it? And how often in our most honest moments we feel. And the problem with this is there's no program, there's no strategy, there's no budget, there's no staff person that's going to fix this. The wounds go so deep, the brokenness is so substantive, the illness is so so pervasive that we can't fix it ourselves. We can't heal ourselves. We can't make ourselves right. It's going to require help from the outside that enters in. Worship for me at this church changed in, I think it was probably 1980 when I was on the staff. And the woman who is the chair of the deacons asked if she could give her witness on Sunday morning. So she stood right here. And we all remember her as, or knew her as this immaculately quaffed, everything she did was done beautifully, uh, graciously, kindly kind of woman. And she said all, it was evident as she even began her testimony that our perceptions of her were all true. But then she said, there's one thing you don't know about me. I'm an alcoholic. And for a moment, you could feel the air sucked out of the room as everyone (gasps) And then suddenly, like a wind, the air just poured back into the room as people said, phew. So this is a place where it's safe to be honest about my brokenness. I don't have to hide my woundedness. I don't have to pretend behind some facade covering the scaffolding of my life that everything is beautiful and good inside. This is the place where the real brokenness, the real needs, the real wounds of my life, of our life, of our world can be brought before the presence of God. We don't have to leave the worries of the world at the door, as Lori reminded us, but it's precisely here in worship that the worries of the world belong. This is that kind of place. I had a, it just shows what a slow learner I am, a a strange realization a few years ago. In recognizing that humility isn't a spiritual virtue. Notice it's not listed in Galatians 5 among the fruit of the Spirit as one of the Spirit's fruit in our life, humility. It's not there. I always thought humility was something towards which I should aspire. Oh, Lord, make me more humble. Humility is not a fruit of the Spirit. Humility is a fruit of facing reality. When I allow the facades to be stripped off, the covers, the pretense, the performa, the persona, all the things that I do to gain accolades and admiration and respect and positive regards of other people, when I allow those to be stripped off, my weakness, my vulnerability, my fragility, my dependency, my neediness become evident to see. (sighs) 
But God is not impotent in response to this. God is not helpless. God rather says, oh, now we can finally begin. There is no such thing as prayer that's not honest. Dishonest prayer is simply gaming God. If we're not being honest with God about the realities of our lives, then we're fooling ourselves, and God's not fooled. And it's when we finally reach the moment where we can say to ourselves and to God, this is who I am. Or like that woman, I'm an alcoholic. God said, oh, now we can go to work. Now change can occur. Now transformation can begin. Because listen to this. Verse 13. But now, a great but now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then jumping down to verse 19. So then, this but now and this so then bracket and shape and inform and sh our lives. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer outsiders. You're no longer far off. You're citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. And between those verses, Paul outlines how God acts to make that possible. And notice in this, 100% of the agency is God's. We don't do it. We can't fix it. We can't make it happen. We have to just honestly and openly admit and stand and participate and say our small, fragile, feeble yes to this extravagant pursuing mercy of God. You who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, verse 14. In his flesh he's made both groups into one, has broken down the dividing wall, the hostility between us. The word peace here is a beautiful word. It's not when a piece of cloth is torn, you can either throw it away and get something new, you can put a patch on it and call it art, or you can reweave it. And that's the word peace. Torn thread by torn thread, God reweaves, reweaves in Christ our torn, tattered hearts and homes and societies. And this peace is not something He gives. Oh, Lord, give me your peace. This is not something he bestows. This is not something he grants. Paul says he is our peace. We find it by entering into his life. But there's more. In his flesh, in his body, he made both groups one. A religion that says our bodies are barriers to knowing God is not the gospel. A religion that says our bodies are not good and something beautiful created by God to be treasured and honored is not the gospel. Because it is very, God took upon our bodies, our flesh. It is in our bodies that we encounter the presence of God. Stunning for those of us who don't like our bodies very much. In his flesh, he made both groups one, broken down the walls. We specialize in building walls. We've got whole industries of wall building. And God is in the business of wall dismantling, taking them down. He's abolished the law with his commandments, and he has created in himself one new humanity in the place of two, making peace that he might reconcile both groups in one body through the cross, putting to death hostility, enmity through it. The only way enmity can be gone is for it to die 
It can't be gone through a peace treaty or a ceasefire. It takes a death for it to occur, a death to pride, a death to privilege, a death to a sense of what I deserve and am am entitled to. It takes a dying. But the, the strategy is one new humanity, a new way of being human, one new anthropos, Paul says. A new humanity has come into existence. The gospel is not just God sprinkling our lives with a little bit of forgiveness and a little bit of moral imperative to try harder and be nicer. The gospel is God reconstituting our humanity, remaking us, not just kind of, I'll make all things new, please, Lord, but a complete reconstitution of who we are. I am now a creature alive in Christ. He is my life as he is my peace. That's the gospel. And through him, this great verse in verse 18, through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. This this summary of the Trinity in eight words. In him, all of creation is joined together and grows into a holy temple. In him, we are being built into, by the Spirit, into the dwelling place of God. Think about it for a moment. Some implications to this that are quite surprising. First of all, Paul is describing this grand social disruption, this disruption of how we order our social lives. There is no longer anymore an insider or an outsider. There is no longer anymore an acceptable or an unacceptable person. There is no longer anymore one who is my kind of person who is welcome into my fellowship and my life and my sphere. All those divisions are down in one new anthropos, one new humanity in Christ. Grace Kane was a, a remarkable member of this church for decades and of her many ministries, one was to women who were commercial sex workers in our city. And every Sunday, Grace would bring a few of her friends, her clients, um, to worship here. They came to the morning service. They sat the fifth row back on that side. And Grace's friends did not look like your average UPC parishioner. Uh, they were not... You knew who Grace's friends were when they were here. And every Sunday, some members of the church took turns in a row to invited Grace and her friends to their house for lunch after church. And one Sunday, they were in this beautiful house in Laurelhurst. And the women were sitting in the living room, and they had never sat in a room like that. They didn't know rooms like that even existed. And while the husband and wife were finishing lunch preparations, the nine-year-old daughter of this family came into the living room and climbed up in the lap of one of these women. She didn't know what her occupation was. And she started stroking her face, having never seen skin that color in her sheltered life. And she said, oh, you are so beautiful. And the woman burst into tears. And she turned to Grace and said, I've been touched in every way imaginable in my life. But this is the first time I've ever been touched in love. This is this new social order where God reaches out to touch us in love and empowers and emboldens and commands us to touch others that way. 
so that in this fellowship, this social order, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, my kind of people, the wrong kind of people. In this community, there's no longer any need for somebody to shout out in dismay, don't, don't black lives matter? Doesn't my life matter? Isn't there a place here for my kind of person in this place? But all those walls are torn down in one new humanity. It's, it's disturbing, isn't it? You think for the, the millennia that good Jews had worked hard at guarding the walls, uh, being clear who were the right and the acceptable kind of people. You can think how troubling it would be for the, the Gentile listeners to this message. But wait a minute. These Jews too? They're weird. They're my kind of people also. One new humanity. But it doesn't stop there. There's a political disruption in this new order. Paul says in verse 19, so then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we're citizens with the saints. He chooses a political word. There are many, many other words he could have chosen. But the word he chose was one of the most treasured words in Greco-Roman society. Because if you were a citizen of the empire, you had status and stature and dignity and rights and privileges that were huge. But if you weren't, you had none of those. And so guarding your citizenship and walling off those who were not was a major industry in the Roman world. And he says, but wait a minute, there's a new citizenship. You are now citizens in the kingdom of God. And that trumps all other citizenships. That supersedes, wrong word, that supersedes all other citizenships. That is greater and deeper and more determinative and more profound than any other loyalty you might have in your life. You are citizens of the kingdom. It's no wonder there was a riot in Ephesus when this letter was received. It's no wonder that the Christians were dragged into the arena to be put on trial because of this this was not just any longer heresy, it was now treason that was being proclaimed. It has some implications for us personally, a disruption personally, that all my specialty at self-loathing and, and self-recrimination and self-criticism, all the skill we have at pretending that we've got it all together when we don't, all the, the efforts we make to posture and position ourselves as being better or first or greater or more substantive or more commendable than others, all of that personal industry that we have is turned upside down, is overthrown, is disrupted. And we discover instead that in Christ we are made members of God's household. Members of God's own family, not just as a nice little trite euphemism, but a profoundly substantive statement. And Paul goes on to say, then there's a religious disruption that occurs because you are now a holy temple. It's not just the temple in Jerusalem. It's not just the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's not the temple that counts. It's you. You are a holy temple. You're, the church is not a set of programs and budgets and bureaucracies. The church is the dwelling place of God. And it's the dwelling place of God about which I gossip and criticize and complain. It is this sense of sacred presence of God. And the whole point of church 
is to nourish in us, to nourish us to grow up ever more fully into this stature as the dwelling place of God. That's our purpose. And when that happens, everything changes because the, the word that the early church chose to describe itself, this word church in, in Greek, ekklesia, that too was an in-your-face empire kind of word. It was a political word because the ecclesia in Roman society was the gathering of all the citizens of a town to conduct the affairs of the town. So they all gathered in the ecclesia, in the arena or the forum or the theater to conduct the affairs of the city. So when the Christians in Ephesus were dragged to the forum, it was the ecclesia that was dragging them. And Paul's saying, and the church is saying, oh, no, 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 no. There's a different ecclesia here. There's a different church here. We are called not by the authority of the empire, but we're called by the authority of God. And our purpose is not to conduct the affairs of our small little kingdom. The, our purpose is to conduct the affairs of the kingdom of God. And this is a kingdom that spans the globe and pertains to all people everywhere where there are no longer insiders and outsiders, acceptable and unacceptable, but all are brought near. All enmities are healed by the blood of Christ. One Monday morning when I was on staff here, I got a phone call from Natalie, my boss. She was supposedly my administrative assistant, but she really was my boss and my trainer and my tutor. Um, she knew a whole lot more than I did. And she said, Tim, you need to come into the office this morning. So I got here about 8.30 in the morning, and there was a very distraught man in my office. He was a scientist from the University of Washington, and he'd come to church um, yesterday, Sunday, uh, for the first time in his life. And he said, Saturday night I was going to kill myself. I decided there was just no evidence for anything good in the world and there's no reason to keep on living. So I was going to end it. But I said to myself, Henry, that's pretty stupid. You're a scientist and there's one thing you haven't tried. You haven't tried church. Uh, so let's just do a little experiment here and let's try church tomorrow. So he said, I gave myself a 24-hour extension and I came here. And I didn't understand a thing that went on in this place. Uh, then we wore, wore black robes, and you monks fluttering around in your black robes, and the singing and the standing and the talking, and I didn't get any of it, but there was something there. There was something there. And so I gave myself another 24-hour extension until I could talk with somebody to tell me what it was. So here I am. What was it? The dwelling place of God a holy temple, a place where all those who feel like there is no hope, all those who feel like there is no God, all those who feel like there's no reason to live, all those who feel like their status as aliens, as outsiders, is so definitive that there's just no point in continuing on. Here, by the Spirit of God, this welcome, being brought near, being drawn in. And when that happens... It doesn't just transform the life of one scientist from the University of Washington, but it can transform the lives of whole communities and nations. Because God is in the business of calling us out that we might be drawn near, that we might, like my little grandson, over and over and over again return to God's invitation to come 
And we come to this table. And one final word that's worth mentioning. The word we describe, we call this as a sacrament, isn't it? Sacrament simply means sacred word, sacred oath, sacred vow. And that too was another political word that the church chose because there was already a sacrament in the Roman Empire. And that was the oath of loyalty a soldier took to Caesar when they were enlisted in the empire. And they said, there is no higher authority in my life than Caesar. And I will die for the sake of Caesar. And the church said, ah, there's another sacrament. And this is a sacrament that supersedes that one. It's a sacrament in which God has made God's vow, God's sacred word to us. I am your God and you will be my people. I will carry you through the deep waters. I will redeem you. I've called you by name. You are my own. You will stand clothed in my dignity and beauty and holiness and goodness. And all the wounds of your life, the brokenness of your heart, will one day be well. They will be mended and healed. This is my sacred vow to you, God says. And we respond by uttering our own sacred vow. We take a sacrament. We say, okay, Lord Jesus... There is no higher authority in my life but you. I surrender all lesser identities, all lesser sources of worth, all smaller purposes. I will live to be yours. Whatever it takes, no holds barred, because really it doesn't matter since in order to take this sacrament, it's, I remember as a high school kid in a UPC youth retreat, the first time I ever saw communion being served up at Warm Beach, this was so bizarre. This is my body broken for you. No, it's French bread. This is my blood shed for you. No, it's Welch's grape juice. What is this? Are my Christian friends cannibals? Unless you eat me, you have no life in yourself. This, I was terrified. I didn't get it at all. It's a funny, funny little ritual when you think about it. But it's at the crux. It says it all. The only way enmity can end is through death. The only way new life can begin is by the ending of the old. And we enter into that as we participate by the Spirit in the dying of Christ, dying to all other lesser loyalties, that we might rise clothed in the beauty and the dignity and the holiness and the goodness of God. And so God invites us tonight to be the people who keep on returning, to keep on coming, because this is a daily deal. It's not something that you get over with once. But every moment, every day, there is this calling to turn from all my lesser loyalties and smaller identities and facades of worth and find something that is so beautiful, so stunning, that the overturning that I experience is an overturning that makes all things new. I invite us to spend a moment in just silent prayer. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.